One of the common threads that we hear from many Christians is that when there are hard times, they turn back to God. What if I was to tell you that's not always the case? In fact, what we're going to be dealing with here in Hebrews chapter 10 is a temptation that many Christian believers, particularly Jewish believers, face in going back to Judaism. In fact, actually rejecting what they've already been taught in the gospel. This morning, we're going to start off with willful sin. Number one, we're going to look at the danger of judgment in verses 30, 26 through 31. Number two, the urge to persevere in verses 32 through 39. Let's start reading in verses 26 through 31. It says this, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the blood of the Son of God, the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the most dangerous places that we actually find ourselves as believers is to assume that all judgment is passed since we have already been justified. There's nothing else for me to be concerned with. I'm walking with God. Um, I can frankly just live any way that I want. And one of, the, one of the dangers that we're going to unpack here is the willful sin that's mentioned here in this verse. Specifically, he says, for if we sin willfully. Um, the text start off and starts off and tells us that willful sin no longer has a sacrifice that can be paid for it, but an expectation ultimately of judgment. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is before we dig into this text, I want to start off by stating what that does not mean. So what does it not mean when we say willful sin? What we don't mean is if we sin after we've heard the gospel message, there's no more hope. Uh, that can't be true because many of us have heard the gospel message multiple times and got saved, if you will, later on. Uh, there's a strong possibility that even Nicodemus was not uh, regenerated the first time he heard the gospel, but probably heard the message many times before he accepted it and was born again. What it also doesn't mean is that if we sin habitually, there's no more hope. Uh, I don't know how many of you have sinned habitually this past week, maybe with something as simple as anger. I think all of us have struggled with that. Um, and we've probably struggled with that the week before and the week before that. So um, it really can't mean that it's habitual sin, if you will. Else, 1 John 1, 9 uh, is null and void. You know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That would just be canceling out that verse uh, particularly that all of us hold dear. If this text is dealing with willful sin, what exactly is it talking about? Well, let's start by going back and answering um, who this book is written to. Uh, remember, this is written to Jewish believers who believed in the Messiah, and they were tempted to go back to Judaism, back to the sacrificial system that they had ultimately had done away with, with Christ. They were tempted to go back uh, to Judaism because of the severe persecution that they faced. In fact, many of them were ostracized by their families. And making the statement earlier in the chapter, this is why the writer of Hebrews says it's important to gather with one another. 
Because to them, some of them, the only family that they knew was the church. That gathering together, though, would expose them possibly to even more difficulty, as we find that the gathering of the people lost them possible status in the community. Um, Jesus ultimately did away with all of those things when it comes to the sacrificial system. His death, burial, and resurrection did away with that entirely. The readers knew that are reading this right here that under the old covenant there was always a priest that stood for the people. And if there's, they, there was sin, that was covered by the sacrifice. In fact, Jesus made himself the sacrifice, doing away with the old covenant and gave them a new covenant in his blood. Let's read back in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 10. Look at what it says. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. One of the things that the author does here in the book of Hebrews is he encourages them to enter boldly again to the throne of grace, the holiest, if you will, and to continually to hold tight to the profession that they've made, to make it a point not to neglect meeting together. There was a lot more at stake for them in the meeting than there is for us today. In fact, contextually, this is probably during the time of Nero's persecution of Christians. This was more than merely just a fine for gathering together. It could very well be their life. Understand that for some of us, we don't quite understand this in modern-day Christianity. The fact that being a Christian ultimately causes us to lose our job automatically. And one of the things that I think we struggle sometimes because we're in a totally different setting today is that for the most part, our country is still relatively open to the Christian faith. Yes, we see some, some changes coming probably here shortly, but for the most part, none of us have lost our homes because of our status of being a follower of Christ. So what is this actual willful sin that the author's talking about? The willful sin that's actually being mentioned here is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Now, how do we know that this is exactly what the author's actually talking about? As with any text, it's crucial to understand the context and not just pull a verse out of its context and build a full argument around that. Doctrine is important. Doctrine simply is a teaching, if you will. If you build doctrine off of one verse, uh, you risk misinterpreting that text with the rest of Scripture. And if that one verse says something different than everything else in Scripture, the issue is not with that verse per se, it's with your interpretation of that verse. If a verse seems to go against the rest of Scripture, you need to go double-check the rest of the context of that author, particularly the book that you're reading, and then in a greater picture, possibly the author in other books that they've written, and then in the full context of the, of the rest of the Bible. Unbiblical churches, those that don't really follow the Word of God much, uh, just sprinkle some verses here and there. They, they do teach doctrine. It's just false doctrine. It's not doctrine that's been checked out with the rest of Scripture. That's why it's important that context is king for us. So why is the sinful 
sin? Why is the willful sin, if you will, here unbelief that we're talking about? Well, number one, unbelief is warned about in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, and also in chapter 4, verse 2. It says this, back in verses 12 to 13, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then jumping to chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So that's one way we know that unbelief is mentioned because it's actually mentioned earlier in, in the different chapter in the same book of Hebrews. Another reason is that they're encouraged to approach with a full assurance of faith here in verse 22. Back in chapter 10, verse, verse, starting in verse number 19, listen to this. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we see that they're encouraged to approach with a full assurance of faith back in verse 22. Here's what's even more interesting, is faith is mentioned as vital at the end of this chapter throughout chapter 11, which we consider the hall of faith, if you will. And in chapter 12, where Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, who endured to show us what it looks like. In fact, let's read those verses. It says, therefore, in, cha in, in, uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I almost wonder if the sin that so easily besets us is the temptation to unbelief, based on the previous context. The willful sin is the sin of unbelief or apostasy, in turning away from God and what he has done on their behalf. Those Jewish believers at this time would have been familiar with this text in Numbers chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. Look what it says. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person will be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. The idea here is a deliberate, willful disobedience and a defiance of God's commandment. One thing that we need to understand is the Jewish people had a totally different approach to sin than you and I do as Christians. In fact, to them it was very serious that they sinned. They were absolutely alert to do their best, unlike many of us do. In fact, back then, adultery was a defiant act, if you will, and it was punishable by death. Murder was also a defiant act, punishable by death. Worshipping a pagan deity was also a defiant act, punishable by death. There was no remedy for those sins. If you committed them, you were guilty, and there was no sacrifice to be offered for those. So, here's a question to ask. 
who is implied here that can commit the sin of unbelief or apostasy? And there are three main positions here on this text here. Number one, some argue that it's a loss of salvation of a genuine believer. Number two, some argue a false convert who has never been saved to begin with. And number three, some argue that it's a true convert who turns his back on what they once believed. Great men that I respect and hold dear hold on to the second and third position. The first one, I believe, falls flat on its face, especially when we go back to John and see that we're secure in Christ and that we will never perish, as John clearly spells that out for us. I believe the correct position is the third position, based on a few things here in the text. Number one, the author includes himself in verse 26. Look at what he says here in verse 26. He says, for if we sin willfully. So he's including himself with the audience. And I'm assuming that the author is a genuine believer himself. Number two, the one sinning willfully is counted sanctified. Look at verse 29. Look at what it says. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So this person is sanctified, set apart, if you will. Another thing that I think here, especially in this text that we see clearly, is the call to persevere in faith. It's consistently reiterated throughout the text. We see, do not cast away your confidence. It's re-emphasized constantly in the book of Hebrews, and it says, the just shall live by faith. There is a similar wording also to this warning that we see here in this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the text is clearly speaking to believers who must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what it says here, starting in verse number 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. You see, there's a real danger for apostasy that's possible for every believer to fall into. The idea here is that what Jesus has done, and by treating it lightly, we've said, hey, I'm not going to live by faith any longer, God. I'm just going to do things my own way. I think the blood and sacrifice of Jesus is not enough for me. I'm going to go and do my own thing. We no longer live by faith. We return to a state of unbelief and live as if God's grace just does not matter. It doesn't matter that Jesus really paid it all for us. One of the saddest things is that we as believers could do exactly what these Hebrew believers could be tempted with. It's turning our backs on Christ. It's a matter of, for them, turning back to the sacrificial system. For us, it may look different than that, but there are things that we turn to many times in rejecting what God has called us to by living by faith. God the Father, believer, will not take it lightly that we take what Jesus has done on our behalf for granted. Renouncing one's faith is precisely the temptation that the Hebrew believers faced. There's a seriousness that must be understood when it comes to a follower of Jesus Christ. First of all, that follower of Jesus Christ may find that what he has done on their behalf is worthless in their life. Why? Because there's no evidence of faith, 
only unbelief because of a disobedient person that deliberately, consistently disobeys what God has said. Number two, this person may find other religions to be just as viable as the Christian religion. In this case, following Jesus Christ. These believers were very tempted to go back to Judaism. There are what I consider two main ways that really apostasy rears its ugly head when it comes to the followers of God. Number one, and this is kind of a big one, it's a deliberate rejection of God verbally. I no longer profess to believe what I say I believe. There's just a, many Christian authors will come out and say, I no longer am a Christian, I don't believe what Jesus has done um, is really important, um, or some even say, as far, I go as far as saying, I've rejected Christianity altogether, I don't even know if God exists. Um, this is a deliberate rejection. Now, some of those people may very well uh, be unbelievers uh, that really have just kind of walked with the people of God but not be a part of the people of God. Others, I believe, may very well have a deliberate rejection, um, and God is ultimately going to deal with them on that. Uh, number two is a deliberate rejection practically. What I mean by that is um, I no longer believe because I no longer practice any of the things Scripture says. Um, I, I find that this one is actually very hard to spot in a lot of believers uh, because a lot of believers, they walk away from the faith for a long time. Uh, they don't go to church. They don't care to spend time with other believers um, in fellowship around the Word of God. Uh, so this one's a little harder spot. Uh, what, what tends to happen is you have two extremes that pastors fall into in, in assuring some people of their salvation because they professed one time and then also um, giving people a false sense of security that no matter what, you know, they're, they're securing Christ, so uh, that profession was definitely genuine, and, and that's not always the case. May very well be, but it's not always the case. That's why it's important that these things are things that we pay attention to. Number two here in this text that we're going to see is the urge to persevere. The author's telling us that it's important to persevere in verses 32 through 39. It says this, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So a couple things that I think are key reminders here in this text that we see give us the urge to persevere. This is the author telling us, you know what, you need to persevere. There's a sense of urgency here. Number one, and he mentions this in verses 32 through 33, we need to think back over our Christian experience. Think back over your Christian experience. These believers instantly felt the pressure and were persecuted for their faith as soon as they turned to Messiah. They were publicly humiliated. They helped others that were going through the same thing. That's one of the reasons why the community is so important, and the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that. You're going you're gonna to make it further in your walk with God if you have the support of other followers of Jesus as well. It's one of the reasons why, if you're by yourself, the one thing you definitely need to do is find others that are walking faithfully with Christ and connect with them. It is absolutely important. Whether you can do it in person right now with this 
virus going on or not is still vital that you find community, whether it's through Zoom or in person. But make sure as best as you can to find community. Number two, know there are better things waiting for you in heaven. In verse 34, he specifically mentions that there are things that are waiting for us for being faithful to Christ. Ask yourself, believer, the things that you most enjoy right now, are they in any way comparable to you when it comes to heaven? Do you enjoy everything that you have so much that you've neglected to remember that you have something greater waiting in heaven? That nice house that you may have, the, the newer car, uh, the really you know, wonderful couch for some of us, the beautiful patio, the big screen TV, all those things, those nice things that you enjoy, even the family that God's given you, are those the things that you find yourself attracted to more than realizing there's heaven waiting for you that's much greater? Would you be willing to give up all those things and risk being publicly humiliating, humiliated, ostracized, possibly even persecuted for your faith, knowing that there's something greater in heaven? You see, we've become too comfortable in our Christian walk. We think somehow that we deserve these things that we have right now. Now I know some of us have uh, endured quite a bit this year especially. I think this year really has made us face reality in a different sense. I think a lot of us, if you will, the, the phrase, we're all in this together, has almost become true in some ways. Uh, there's isolation that many of us are going through uh, that we haven't experienced before. But in experiencing that, I want to encourage you to look at your faith in Christ and see if that's become more valuable or not. Have you looked forward to heaven only because of heaven itself, or are you looking forward to heaven because of Christ and what he has done on your behalf? You see... There's no point in heaven if Jesus is not there. Jesus is what makes heaven what it is. In fact, one of the things that is important here that the author reminds us here in verses 35 through 38, and this is a big one that a lot of Christians have held to throughout the centuries, is that Jesus will once again make things right. Jesus will once again make things right. It's almost like a cliche statement for many of us uh, that Jesus is going to restore everything. One day it'll all be right. Um, but I think we need to stop and pause to think through that. All the things that you and I find unjust or unfair uh, really will one day be fixed. They will be solved by the one who judges properly and justly. In fact, uh, there's a promise waiting for us that even the saints of old did not receive, and that is what we have in Christ and all that he possesses. That's the promise. He's in charge and we get all the benefits that he has given to us. We get to ultimately reign with him one day. I don't know if you understand, believer, that you one day will legitimately have a position in glory that you can't even imagine. It doesn't matter what your economic status is right now. In Christ, that is not the qualifier. That's not the qualifier in heaven. In fact, the qualifier in heaven is what we've done for Christ here on earth. And all those things that we have materially that God's given to us to use, it's how we've used those things that are going to determine what our position and status is in heaven. So the last point here that's made by this author is number four, keep moving forward. Verse 39. In fact, look at what it says here in verse 39. Specifically it says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So believer, here's my big encouragement to you. Don't give up. Don't quit right now. Persevere. Keep 
finding ways to be in fellowship with others, it's crucial for your perseverance. Encourage others to follow Christ. It's crucial in your perseverance. Be willing to fight that sin of unbelief that can creep up in any of us. Particularly, every sin that we commit is born out of the sin of unbelief. In fact, Scripture actually says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So here's my question in, in, in conclusion here. Very simple question, but it's a serious one. Are you losing your faith? Are you losing your faith? I don't mean in a generic, keep your chin up type of way. It's going to be alright. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, are you feeling like quitting on this Christian life? Have you just felt overwhelmed by everything and wondering whether what you've been doing for Christ has mattered much um, and you just found others just seem to have a little bit easier than I do right now and I'm, I'm really hoping that we just get through all this craziness and we, we can get back to just enjoying life the way it is. And I don't really care what God is trying to teach me right now. I just want to get back to what I had before. Maybe that's exactly what God is doing in our lives. He's making us pause right now and think long and hard about our own faith. You see, one of the big temptations is not just to go back to God, but ultimately to stop believing Him. One of the big big debates that many of us have in our minds that we don't always willingly acknowledge is that we say we love God, we say that we trust Him, we say that we follow Him, and yet in our lives we completely deny a lot of His existence. Has this year made you feel like God just doesn't seem to care? Because I think that that's really the, the sense that a lot of people have, including believers. If you're just going through the motions and finding the world to be more important than what Jesus has done on your behalf, in rescue you from your sin, can I, can I encourage you simply to come home, to go back to the Father, to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and to say, I trust you once again. If you just found a lot of the things that we've mentioned just blot, you know, that doesn't apply to me, it's somebody else, they might be losing their faith, that's not really me. I just want to have you heed this warning. I don't want you to misunderstand what might be coming in your life if you're not aware. In fact, here's one of the verses here that we read that's important. He says this in verse 29. Just think, and I'm using a different translation here, just think how much worse the, the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Listen, believer. Jesus paid for sin in full. Let's keep going because he who has promised is faithful.